Good morning. We're going to look at uh, Psalm 111 this morning, and if you would go ahead and turn there, we're going to spend most of our time there launching out a bit, because this psalm is, is oft quoted in the New Testament and referred to elsewhere, but it's a, I thought, a, a, a perfect little psalm. It's, it's frankly pretty simple, which is probably why they allowed me to preach it, They figured I could handle it. It's a psalm that really deals with the, the formula, the structure for biblical thanksgiving. It is going to be quite simple as we're going to simply look at the works of the Lord and respond to them. And that is the idea that this psalm will unfold. This idea of giving thanks to the Lord for he is great and his works are mighty. And that is a wise way to live life. As we look at this psalm, I want us to, to set the stage though a bit. As, as we think through the entire book of Psalms, uh, I want to remind you that really the book of Psalms is divided into five main sections. Our psalm is obviously in the last section, but it's worth going through uh, an overview of the other four books because they tell a story. Sometimes we think of the book of Psalms as just sort of a collection of, of hymns and poems that were sort of slapped together, but there is a general theme of progressively revealing the Lord from simple to complex, from the simplicity of Psalm 1 to the more difficult sections in the middle of the Psalms and the insights into God that we, we see in the latter sections where we're able to take our complaints to God, to praise him for who he is in all of his fullness. And then in the final section, we get the opportunity to respond. That's one of the main goals and purposes of the fifth book of the Psalter found in Psalms 107 through 150, of course, wherein Psalm 111 lies. For the last section of the Psalm is sort of like the finale of a firework display. You go to the 4th of July firework display and you see all the fireworks go off and you do your oohs and ahs, but you know it's coming. You know at the end there's going to be this great display at the end, this crescendo, this finale of fireworks. And Psalm 107 through 150 provide that for us. It provides us opportunity to respond in two ways, in both thanksgiving and in praise to what we've learned about God in book one, book two, book three, and book four. So it has a purpose, sort of the dotting of the eye of the Psalter. And right in the middle of, uh, in that section is this very important psalm that would have been very familiar to Paul and Peter and John. This would have been part of their scrolls that would have been marked up for, I, for Psalm 111 is oft quoted and oft alluded to throughout the rest of the scripture. This particular little uh, section also has some themes that we've already recognized. Obviously, thanksgiving and praise, also blessing and righteousness, as you might expect. Terms for thanksgiving show up a whole lot in this section. Over 30 times the idea of thanks, over 60 times the concept of praise. And in fact, within the little section of the Psalms, this last book, he gives us three particular subunits that help guide us into responding to the Lord as we've learned throughout the rest of the Psalter. The Hallel Psalms, the Hebrew word halal is the normal word for praise as in hallelujah. We'll study that word in a moment. These were the Psalms that were sung during the, the slaughtering of the Passover lamb. Matthew records that at the last supper before Jesus went out, they sung a hymn. Almost certainly it would have been Psalm 118, typically the last Psalm sung in the Passover Seder. 
And those sections of of scripture remind us of the importance of praising the Lord for his great redemption and his great provision. The Psalms of Ascents begin in, in Psalm 120 through 134. They are so called because you ascend to go to Jerusalem. Every Jewish male three times a year, if he was 20 years or older, was required to go up to Jerusalem. It didn't matter if you were coming from the south, east, west, or north. You went up to Jerusalem for it was high. It was on a plateau. And as you ascended to worship the Lord at either Passover, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, or at the end of the agrarian summer at the Feast of Tabernacles, you would sing these psalms of ascent in preparation of worshiping and giving thanks at those great festivals. They were sort of like camping songs, songs that you knew that you would sing in the car today or on the caravan then as you made your way up to Jerusalem. And finally, the finale of the book of Psalms, these five Psalms that all begin and end with praise the Lord, hallelujah, thus the hallelujah Psalms in Psalms 146 through 150 remind us to respond to God with thanksgiving and praise for who he is and how he has been revealed throughout the rest of the Psalms. Praise and thanksgiving are ultimately terms of response. And that's something I want to stick with you today, that to give praise is response that we understand that God has done for us. The concept of praise is going to be to recognize as something great uh, in in its virtue or in its character, in its person. And you respond to it by saying, I consider that to be great. Thanksgiving is in response to something that is good that has come to you. And the proper response is that to give thanks. And we see in this section of the Psalms, the, not only the privilege, but the expectation to give thanks and praise for all that God has done. Now, Psalm 111 has a buddy. Some of you like to jog or swim and you may have a running buddy or a swimming buddy. Psalm 111 has a buddy. Psalm 112, and they're uniquely linked, in fact, would have been well known by those that studied the Old Testament routinely, for they have a cause and effect relationship. They have the same structure, the same number of stanzas, they have the same number of verses. They're both acrostic psalms, as we'll see here in a moment. But moreover, and more importantly, Psalm 111 tells us what God is like. Psalm 112 tells us what the godly are like. Psalm 111 tells us the the righteousness of God. Psalm 112 tells us that the man of God must also be righteous. So we get something to respond to. Psalm 111, the picture of God. Psalm 112, if I want to be like him, what will I look like? And that's why those two are linked often uh, as, as they're discussed. Psalm 111 and 112. There is an acrostic arrangement to this psalm, and I like to spend just a moment to bring this sort of stuff out because we are looking at a section of the scripture that's poetry. It's got all sorts, it doesn't all rhyme, by the way, but it's got structure. And in this one, it's arranged in Hebrew alphabetical order. Okay, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there are 22 little stanzas within Psalm 111, and they each begin with the next successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Be like in our language, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, they would go Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalev, Hey, Vav, Zion. Now, to, to maybe illustrate that a bit, to understand an acrostic more fully, it came to me as I was preparing that there was a time in my life where I was not a good speller of the word geography. 
I was working at home one day as a kid and I was studying for a spelling test and my father was helping me out and I couldn't handle the word geography. I just couldn't spell it correctly. And my dad looked at me and he said, George Edwards' oldest girl rode a pig home yesterday. I said, well, dad, I appreciate your concern about George and his oldest girl and her pig, which is a rather unusual scene. But what does that have to do with geography? He said, George Edwards, oldest girl, rode a pig home yesterday. I said, okay. He says, think about each letter at the beginning of that ridiculous sentence. George G. Edwards E. Or George G. Edwards E. Oldest O. And I was able to spell geography. G-E-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. So you may go home today and say, what did the guy talk about in church? You go, I don't really know, but I learned how to spell geography. George Edwards' oldest girl rode a pig home yesterday. That's an acrostic. And the language of the Old Testament, certainly here in Psalm 111, follows that same idea. There are other acrostic psalms that are arranged alphabetically. And I think it's interesting, by the way, that certainly it was intended to be memorized. As you would think about the next stanza, you'd know it would begin with the next letter. But it also helps our understanding of inerrancy and the whole doctrine of transmission. Books written thousands of years ago have been kept intact because the, the, the scribes, the copyists knew that those stanzas had to remain alphabetically successive. Uh, it, it sort of looks like this. I'll give you a few minutes to contemplate the wonders of Psalm 11. But I wanted you to see, as I've highlighted in the yellow, not only how the, the alphabet works through, and take it for my, for my word that that's the alphabet working through, but I also wanted you to see that we're studying poetry that we're looking at a song. And those of you that enjoy music and have participated in music know about beat and rhythm. Well, this song has beat and rhythm also. Do you see how the first eight verses kind of follow the pattern of one, two, one, two, one, two, et cetera, all through verse eight. But verses nine and 10 are three beats. So it goes boom, 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 et cetera. Then boom, 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 boom at the end. And that's the crescendo of the psalm. That's what the psalm is drawing your attention to, that at the end, keep in mind, and what that verse will say at the end that are each three stanzas long, is wisdom comes from fearing the Lord, thanking him and being aware of his good works. And that idea is even seen as how the psalmist laid out the psalm. As I was studying the psalm, it's sometimes a helpful technique to just sort of step back from it and say, what are the major ideas that are coming out of this psalm? And for me, there were three, and that's what I want to share with us today. There's the whole, the idea from verse one, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. This idea of wholehearted thanksgiving. In verse two, he talks about contemplating the great works of the Lord, and that was the stimulus for which he was giving thanks. And then at the end, he says, those that do that are participating in wisdom from the Lord. Again, it's a simple psalm. It's intended to be memorized. It's intended to be recited. It's intended to be remembered. That biblical thanksgiving is in response to God's great works. And the one who does that is participating in wisdom from the Lord. And that will become our structure this morning. As we think about in verse 1, the idea of wholehearted thanksgiving. In verses 2 through 9, obviously that becomes the larger section 
of the psalm. And what he's doing in here, he's simply delineating all the works of the Lord. It's a wonderful sort of Cliff Notes version of some of the great works of the Lord that he has sated here in Psalm 111 for our memory that we might respond to them. And so the, the thanksgiving is in response to the works of the Lord, and that is wisdom from the Lord. So the psalmist begins his message uh, by reminding us that the wholehearted thanksgiving to the Lord for his good works and great and marvelous things will be concluded in recognizing that wisdom comes from the Lord. The one who practices biblical thanksgiving in response and in recognition of God's great works is practicing wisdom that comes from above. He's going to begin the psalm with a a, a typical way that you'll see in the fifth section of the book of Psalms, a call to praise. We do that here with with music. Typically, it was done there with a big O shout out. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Now, there are a couple of words here that I want to make sure that we have a good handle on. Sometimes these words that we say so often in the faith and we never step back and say, what what does that word mean? What is what's really going on there? And I think if we go through that effort, you'll really get some insight and draw some pearls from these little terms. The term praise the Lord in English is actually a combo Hebrew word, three components. We're going to see the aspect of halal and you and ya. And that what's going to come from that is the normal understanding for the word halal is that of praise. It is a very common word in the Old Testament. You might praise Sarah's beauty in Genesis or Yahweh here in Psalm 111. It is the recognition of something great. It is the recognition of something of superior quality or virtue or nature. And you extol, you laud that thing, you praise it. The you in the middle of hallelujah is actually how you do in Hebrew to get everyone to do this. It's a command to the, to the group. Here we would say y'all. Y'all praise and the object of the praise is Yah. So halal praise you. Y'all do it. And what are we praising? The shortened form of the word Yahweh, the name of God, seen with this little shortened term Yah. You'll see that word Yah, by the way, the Y drops off, but you'll see that in many of your Old Testament authors. Think through some of the names of guys that have written books in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Yah. Zephaniah, Yah. Isaiah, Yah. Zechariah, Micah, Yah. All these terms incorporate the name Yahweh, the shortened form being Yah. And thus we come back with hallelujah. All of you praise Yah. That's the call to worship. And how the psalmist is going to particularly praise the Lord is going to be in the form of thanksgiving. So thanksgiving then becomes a form of praise as we see here in Psalm 111. There's another key word that we often don't think about, but it's important to spend just a moment, this idea of thanks. What does that really mean? It's the Hebrew yada, and it conveys the idea of acknowledging something. Now, sometimes that word doesn't really come across in our language very well. I might say, I acknowledge that that happened, or I acknowledge your existence or your presence. This is a deeper understanding. This is a deep regard for something. And right in the middle of that word, even in English, is this idea to know something. It is response to the knowledge of something the deep understanding of something, and thus once you understand how that has affected you, 
we respond by saying thanks. Interestingly, the same word yada in the Old Testament is often translated to confess. Why? Because what's consistent with both the, the use in when it's translated confess and the use in when it's translated give thanks is to acknowledge. When I acknowledge sin in English, that's the idea of confession. When I acknowledge God and his good grace toward me, that's the term that we use with the concept of thanksgiving. But what's consistent in Hebrew is this idea of acknowledgement, of understanding that God has done something for me. This term is thus key to this verse. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Now let's just let's do a little Bible study method here for a moment. Let's let's take this verse apart just for a second. Where he is giving thanks, notice the verb that is assigned to giving thanks. It is a vow. I will do this. Often the scripture is anticipating the opportunity in a public format to praise the Lord. And I think that's what's going on here. As he prepares himself for worship, perhaps at one of those great great three festivals, he is looking forward to the time in which he can acknowledge God publicly. That is in the company of the upright and in the assembly. But notice how he's going to do it. The sphere of his thanksgiving is, is wholehearted. I'm going to give this thanks, this acknowledgement of God wholeheartedly with all my heart. In Hebrew mindset, the, the heart was the essence of the person. It's where you purposed your, your deepest uh, wishes. It's the values that you held were here. And so the, the image of their daily life would be the alignment of the head and the heart and the hand. As I think and as I purpose, I will do. As I think and as I purpose, I will do. And the, the, the need to align those three was, the, in essence, their life before the Lord. And so he wants to do that wholeheartedly. Think about all the, the verses, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your, all your strength. All these things he's reminding us of that all that you are, bring that to your thanksgiving. I think at times we struggle with compartmentalizing our lives and, and see our thanking and worship of God. Maybe it's a Sunday thing, it's a church thing. He's reminding us to arrange our entirety of our life around his central presence and respond to that. But notice not only who's doing it or how, but where is he doing it? In the company of the upright and in the assembly is where he's going to perform this. He's going to express his thanks before other believers. At the synagogue, at the great festival, in a small group. I think this is one of the missing components of many of our lives where we're good at giving thanks and praise individually and we're good at doing it before God silently, but how about in a public format? I'm a huge believer in the, in the public giving of testimony. Not just your salvation story, and that's certainly okay, but what has God been doing? Something great and mighty to you that he's performed in your life that you want to let others know of. The reason I think it's important is not just for you to tell the story, although I think that's important, but for others also to be encouraged that God is active, he's alive, he's participating in the lives of his community. And, and I can be encouraged and reminded of that. And the expression in the assembly of the, uh, among the upright in the assembly helps us recognizing that our wholehearted thanksgiving should be done publicly as well as personally. What he's going to focus on, of course, are the works of the Lord. That's what will comprise the bulk 
of this psalm. Verses 2 through 9, he says, Great are the works of the Lord as he introduces this section. They are studied by all who delight in them. I want to focus just for a moment on the term works, studied in the word studied, and then the word delight. In, in the book of Revelation, I believe John picks up in illusion form to what's going on in Psalm 111. He states, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Keep in mind that all of your New Testament writers cut their teeth in the Old Testament. That's where they learned about God and they're simply extrapolating over into the New Covenant these ancient truths about the Lord. John doing this here wonderfully. These great works are of the Lord and they are to be studied. The concept of this word is to seek, to, to inquire, to, to, uh, to look at deeply. It's the word darash. It has the idea to investigate to take your time to really unlock the truth of, of this great God and his great works. Some of you that have done some advanced study might remember the word midrash. Midrash is, the, is still a Jewish way of interpreting scripture where you look at a, at a passage and you deeply investigate it. You seek to unlock its full meaning. We do that often here. The concept is, of course, that it's because the works of the, uh, of the Lord are so great, they must be sought after. They must be studied. They must be inquired. And my encouragement to you this morning is to begin and continue to be men and women of the book, to let your understanding of God's word be ever expansive and to go through this biblical practice of giving thanks in response to the beauty of God's word and the greatness of his works. And what he tells us, he says, you know what? It's delightful to do this. As he's, as he's going to describe here in just a moment, keep in mind that elsewhere we see this, this idea of seeking or studying. This is the generation of those who seek or darash him. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies in Psalm 112, the very next psalm. Those who seek him with all their heart. The connection between the study of the word of God and now the enjoyment of studying the word of God and seeing the greatness of God's work. Because not only great are the works of the Lord, they are to be studied by all who delight in them, who find pleasure in understanding God in his fullness, who, who derive pleasure from seeing some of the nuances of his word. And that is involved in this word delight. We've seen it before. Psalm 1-2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. For he, in his law, he meditates day and night. In Psalm 112, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Same aspect in the very next Psalm, this idea of not only knowing the greatness of God's works, but also to study them for there is great delight in them. The concept uh, expands just a bit more as now he begins to let us see all the things that God has done. And I was preparing I saw a category or two emerge. And as I take us through this section, doing in your own mind, I want you to try to identify whether this is describing a work of God, which is what I thought the bulk of the psalm would say. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that for every work of God, there was also a characteristic of God's person also described. And this beautiful balance between the work and the worker 
came out and emerged. And so as we go through this, splendid and majestic is his work and his righteousness endures forever. His work is this, his character is that. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. The Lord has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them to the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. And we finally see that he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. As we take a look at those two components, I just lifted five from each group to give us something to ponder about. If we're looking for a structure, a format for giving thanksgiving from the scripture's perspective, not only are we to be thankful for the works of the Lord, but also for the person behind the work. And here are some that might help us and the reason for each of them. He's going to tell us that his works are splendid. It has the idea of honor. Something that you would see and you go, that's important. That's an honorable thing that's just happened. It is majestic. It's grand. It's huge. Often God, uh, ever the dramatist, is doing things on a huge scale so that people, uh, that we will see him in that majestic way. He does things that are wonderful. It's hard to respond to something that's wonderful with a closed mouth, right? It's intended to make you go, wow. Whoa, look at that wonder. Think in the New Testament, Jesus was performing signs and wonders. It's it's intended to cause you to think, to wonder about who is this that's performing this great work. His works included provision, food and redemption, particularly in that section. He is one who provides for those in covenant with him. And lastly, his works are powerful. And they're all sort of wrapped up like in a nice Christmas present for the purpose that we might remember him. The one who has done these great things, he tells us that he did them so that we won't forget. And sometimes he goes over the top, it seems, goes out of his way to do these great things that we will not forget him. For we are prone to wander and he does things to cause us to remember his great works. He also does them from a character. The character of God is also revealed in verses 3 through 9. I lifted five for us just to think about. His works, however splendid and majestic, come from a righteous God. A God who recognizes that there are standards. And he wants us to meet those standards. And loves us enough that when we don't meet those standards, he provides a way that in which we can meet that standard. That is ultimately purposed in Jesus Christ, the one who came and died for our sins, that we might be righteous or right with the Lord. God loves standards and he loves those that keep them. And he will not lower those standards even if we have trouble making them. He will help us meet those standards. It's just a part of his character. He is also a God of grace. I love the balance between those two. The standards don't lower, but he provides a gracious way in which we can meet his standards. The idea behind this word is that of giving that which is undeserved. That's the concept of biblical grace in both the Old and New Testament, to give that which is undeserved. 
And this very tender word translated compassion in English actually comes from the word in Hebrew for the woman's womb. This idea of being tender towards someone who came from your own body, your, your, your own child, and how you would be tender, compassionate to them. He is also not just tender. He's also strong and loyal. His covenant is sure and steady, and he will remain true to the performance of his side of that covenant. Throughout this section in verses 8 and 9, he uses the same word that describes strength and power. It's the word from which we get our word faith, by the way. It's the Hebrew word aman. We get our word amen from that word. And it has the idea of strength and reliability. You see, when we believe in something, we first size it up as to its strength, its power, its solidity. Is it firm? Is it steady? And that's why these terms like faithful and sure and truth, even translated by that word, come out. That behind the character of God is a loyal, strong, sure, steady covenanteer. One who will remain loyal to his side of the bargain. Why those characteristics? To remind us that he remembers. He wants us to remember him. And he also wants us to know, I have not forgotten you. I will remember you as well. And the the, the solidity of his promise is what is encouraging to us as we, we see this great God. The works of the Lord are also described uh, or have been described as great. Of course, in verse one, we see, we've seen his works and his person cited here in the bulk of verses three through nine. And then the author sum, sums up. He, he simply steps back. He says, holy and awesome is his name. This concept of, of, of holy and awesome and name, I thought, might want to capture our attention just for a moment. It has the idea of that when something is holy. It is that of distinct and separate. It is uncommon, unlike any other. What the psalmist is reminding us of is that God is unlike anything we've ever encountered. He is distinct. Think of Isaiah 6. When the year the king Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the king. The king of kings, the Lord Sabaoth, in heaven in a vision. And all the angels around him, what were they saying? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. You're in a special place. You're among a distinct and separate, uncommon being. Therefore, act in accord. You might recall Isaiah's response. I I shouldn't be here. I, I, I I don't belong in this special place. That's what this psalmist is saying here. That so distinct and uncommon is the Lord. He is holy and awesome. It's the same word translated in the next verse as fear. It's this idea not to be scared in the sense of a scary movie, but to have deep reverential regard for something. So that, that, that uncommon, distinct thing, I'm also drawn to him. And yet with, I'm drawn to him with this deep reverential regard. And the idea of name, holy and awesome, is his name it's one's full character. It's one reputation. We might say, uh, oh, Harry. Harry has a good name in the community. It's that all that he stands for, all that he is, all that his reputation has brought about is wrapped up in that term name. Lord Sabaoth here is one who has a holy and awesome name. Mary incorporated this thought uh, in her Magnificat in, in, in Luke 1. My soul exalts in the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For the mighty one has done great things for me. 
and holy is his name. This distinct and special one has visited me. And so this idea from this little psalm is is straightforward, that we are to give wholehearted thanks because God's good works have come our way. And it is the wise man who practices biblical thanksgiving and the study and delight of his works found in the word of God. The psalmist will conclude that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise, same word as we saw in the first verse and is now picked up again, his praise endures forever. The main idea that I wanted to lift from that particular verse is this idea of wisdom. This concept of wisdom found in that verse that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to get on the path named wisdom, like getting on a freeway, the beginning, the entree onto that road, that path, is to have that deep reverential regard for the Lord. That same word translated awesome in the previous verse, we sung about here, uh, holy, holy, the Lord God Almighty, awesome and mighty is he. We'll see the same concept here. This one who recognizes the Lord as that way is on the right path. James will make the statement in his first chapter that if you lack wisdom, seek from God and he will give it to you. Ask of the Lord and he will give it and he won't hold back. Because what's involved in this word for wisdom, the Hebrew chokmah, is really this idea of skill. Sometimes wisdom we kind of go, what does that mean? Is that like this for old folks, you know, that have kind of learned a bunch of things over life? The Bible says the young can be wise. The young can be skillful in the Lord. Think about all the things in this room that took skill to make. Think about all the things that you do in your life, in your profession, in your studies, in your person that takes skill. The scripture also says to navigate life like getting on a dangerous river, if you will, you better do it with a guide who knows where he or she is going, who has the skill to know, go left here, go right here, backpedal here, now go hard. That takes skill from having done it. And we have that guide, of course, in the person of the Holy Spirit, instructing us in the word of God and found in the word of God. We need wisdom from God. And this little psalm reminds us that wisdom is also seen in thanking God for his great works and that cyclical response that comes from that. As I thank the Lord for his works, I delight in in them. All of a sudden, I'm thanking him all the more and I'm studying him all the more and I'm thanking him all the more. And what the psalmist is saying is that's wise. That's a wise way to live one's life. The skill for living is really what the psalmist is asking us to consider. Can I be more skillful in navigating my life? Lord, would you help me navigate my life more skillfully? And one of the little tidbits, one of the arrows that he's putting in our wisdom quiver is that we might be people of thanksgiving, that our praise might incorporate thanks and thus as we respond to the greatness of God's works that way. The wise believer, therefore, gives wholehearted thanks as he seeks to understand the works and wisdom of the Lord. And my call to you this morning is to remind you, and especially as we enter now the Advent season, is to be reminded that wise men still seek him, that seek to do life his way. As we arrange ourselves around his central presence, that is a wise course of life.
Wise men are still seeking him. And I call you to that this morning. I'm going to give us just an opportunity for about a moment to think through each of these three things that we've talked about. I'm going to ask us to be quiet for about one minute. I know it's one of those things that will seem like it's forever, but it's really not. And I just want you to think about how you're doing in your area of thanksgiving. What are you thankful for? Biblical thanksgiving is in response to what God has done for us and is to also be incorporated in the community. So how are you doing in your area of thanksgiving? Like if it's, like if it's a barometer and I was a spirit doctor and I would check your level of thanksgiving, how would it register? What would the meter show? How are you doing in your area of looking at the works of the Lord? Are you seeing them as great? Are you seeking to understand them? Are you delighting in your knowledge of God and as he reveals himself in the scripture? And I want you to ask him for wisdom to help you navigate your life this way. There are other aspects of wisdom in the scripture. We're just focusing on this little one. To be thankful in response to the great works of God as we have come to know them in a delightful manner is a wise course of life. Spend just a moment uh, on those three and I will close us in just a minute. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are to be studied by all who delight in them. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had this morning. First and foremostly to be with you and to hear from you. I thank you for the spirit of God who has been our teacher this morning. Might he seal these truths into our hearts. May we have opportunity to contemplate them outside this place. Lord, I ask that we might be people of thanksgiving who who respond to what you have done. I ask that we might be men and women of the book who know your book from Genesis to Revelation for therein is wisdom as we study the greatness of your works and your character and your person. And help us be characterized by skill, Lord, as we navigate our lives. It is such benefit to us, but also most importantly, pleasing to you. I pray that that might be our portion. And I ask this all now in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Y'all have a blessed week.